Welcome to Scream Scene, the horror movie podcast where we watch every horror movie ever made in chronological order, and then we rank them from best to worst. My name's Sarah. And I'm Ben. Thanks for listening to us today on Christmas Day. Merry Christmas, everybody. Merry Christmas. Thank you for sprinkling some Scream Scene into your holly jolly day. Yes, I'm sure that uh, everyone will find the time to listen to this episode on this day, on the day it comes out. (laughs) Yeah, these people are dedicated, Ben. That's true. <laughs> and even if they listen to it later, they're still dedicated. Mm-hmm. And I do think it is kind of special that people are inviting us into their homes to kind of make their home a house of horror, because that's the name of the movie today. Yes, it sure is. Good segue, Sarah. <laughs> today we are watching House of Horrors from 1946, directed by Gene Yarbrough. Yarbrough! This is starring Rondo Hatton, mm-hmm. and we've seen him a couple of times before, and we've talked about him a few times before. Specifically, though, this film is a spinoff from a Sherlock Holmes movie, just like last, last week. week. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, last week we talked about the Spider-Woman Strikes Back, and I gave a little bit of context about what the Sherlock Holmes movie The Spider-Woman looked like. Um, so we knew what she was striking back from. <laughs> the Sherlock Holmes film that this is spinning off from is The Pearl of Death from 1944. Um, there were 14 Sherlock Holmes films in total, starring Basil Rathbone as Holmes and Nigel Bruce as Watson. The Pearl of Death is number 9 okay. of 14. So heading into the back end. Yeah. It also stars Miles Mander as our bad guy, Giles Conover. And we've seen Miles Mander in um, some other horror movies, the 1943 Phantom, the 1943 Return of the Vampire, and 1945's The Picture of Dorian Gray. Huh, weird. I don't remember him at all. Like, I can't <laughs> pull his face to mind in any way. He's not super notable. Gotcha. Um, the Pearl of Death also has Evelyn Anchors mm. as uh, the lady accomplice, Naomi. Um, we've obviously seen her a lot, but probably her most notable role is from the 1941 Wolfman. Yeah. And, of course, Rondo Hatton as the Hoxton Creeper. Yes. Um, our bad guy's right-hand man. hmm These Sherlock Holmes films would range from direct adaptations to inspirations. The Pearl of Death is loosely adapted from Arthur Conan Doyle's short story, The Adventure of the Six Napoleons. Okay. Is, are you familiar with that short story? Um, not, it's not really coming to mind. Like, isn't it about, though, like, there's a bunch of, like, Napoleon doubles, right? Close. I, I don't... But Napoleon is involved, <laughs> or at least his personage. Mm-hmm. There's, uh, six busts of oh, Napoleon. Busts. okay. Yeah. The plot of The Pearl of Death is... Like, the plot points are basically the same as the short story, even if specifics aren't the same. In the film, master criminal Giles Conover steals the Borgia Pearl, um, but he manages to hide it somewhere before he is caught. Later, there's a murder that happens that seems to have no motive, and Holmes is like, hmm, interesting, because the method of death is the signature move of the creeper, which is a broken back. Oh. So, uh, possibly Bane is in this. Right. So the, <laughs> right. So the Huxton Creeper is Bane. Exactly. This is what, Rondo Hatton is what Bane looks like underneath the mask. Exactly. Mm. Um, there's also a ton of broken china at the murder scene. Uh, okay. Another murder occurs of an old lady, seemingly no connection to the other murder except the broken china. Meanwhile, Conover is still attempting to kill Holmes and Watson, so Holmes is pretty sure that Conover is, like, directing the creeper to do these murders for some strange reason. After the third murder... <laughs> Good job, Holmes. Holmes ties the events together because each place had a bust of Napoleon broken, and that was the broken china, even though Napoleon is French. <laughs> Bad joke. Um, so in total, there were six identical busts made, 
and before being caught with the Borgia pearl, Conover hid the pearl in one of these busts. And now they're tracking down the owners of these busts to um, find the pearl. Because he forget, forgot which one he put it in. They're identical, and they right, got but like to their owners. Oh, okay. He put them. He put it in the bus when they were together. Yeah. I was going to be like, yeah, I get that they're identical, but like they're in different places. So there's six of them. Um, they have now tracked down like the last bust, and Holmes goes in, and that's when the creeper confronts Holmes, and they fight it out, and Holmes gets put on the ropes but convinces the Creeper that Conover is going to double-cross him. So, the Creeper turns on Conover and kills him. Then, Holmes kills the Creeper. <laughs> then, the police arrive just as Holmes recovers the pearl in the last Napoleon bust. Does Holmes kill people? That feels, like, a little weird. To be fair, I'm going off of synopses online. No, no, like, I, I'm not saying that I don't believe you. I'm just saying that feels really strange to me. It's probably one of those, like, movie deaths where, like, he has the building crash on him or sure. something. You know, it's not like a point-blank bullet <laughs> wound. I mean, maybe it is. I haven't seen the movie. Right. But a death scene has not stopped Universal in the past. Nope. So I'm not surprised that the Creeper is back alive again. Yes, and, um... Ready for action. Right. And and also, like, not only has a death scene not stopped Universal in the past, but, like, their amount of care towards continuity, continuity <laughs> is, is, you know, lacking. Yeah. So the decision was made, yeah, to spin off the Creeper into his own series of horror movies to create a new franchise for Universal. The one thing I will say that's important to note about the Holmes films from Universal is that they were set present day. Yeah. Um, so I think this film is set present day. So I, I say that only so that, like, it's not like, how did this Victorian character spin off into this 40s movie? Yeah, that's um, fair. But the plan was to do three films about Rondo Hatton as the Creeper. He was going to get, like, had a three-movie deal to do this. Which is um, great. After Pearl of Death. Yeah. So, as discussed in more detail in episode 131 on The Jungle Captive, Hatton was a war veteran and former journalist who suffered from acromegaly, a condition where a person's extremities grow in size due to excess production of growth hormone in the pituitary gland. So you get these big hands, big feet, and then like a big head that often is... Um, Kind of like a Neanderthal look. Yes, yeah, worth like a, an exaggerated brow, exaggerated nose, this kind of thing. This led to Hatton getting an acting quote-unquote career, playing like tough guys and then heavies. The thing about acromegaly is it's cumulative, so as it got worse, the features became more distorted and more pronounced and more exaggerated, and that led to Universal picking him up to play these more monstrous roles, um, because, hey, if we can get this guy, we don't have to do, like, elaborate makeup. So, after his appearance in Pearl of Death, Universal sort of tested Hatton out as a henchman in Jungle Captive, and then in Spider-Woman Strikes Back, before featuring him in House of Horrors. Uh, he was 51 years old when he made this film. And this movie was produced by Ben Pivar, a veteran producer of Universal B-movies, and the director is Gene Yarbrough. Now, Yarbrough's first feature film, after a number of shorts, had been The Devil Bat in 1940. And that was back in episode 81. Oof. And we're now at episode 140. And uh, <laughs> that film is ranked number 95 on the list currently. <laughs> this bodes well. <laughs> Yarbrough also directed the horror comedy King of the Zombies, and then five of the Abbott and Costello features at Universal in 1945. Uh, he had just come off of that assignment when he was given House of Horrors. Okay. The writers for the film are Dwight V. Babcock, who wrote The Mummy's Curse and Jungle Captive, and George Brickner, who wrote The Devil Bat. Starring with Hatton is German actor Martin Kosleck, 
who was born Nikolai Yoshkin in 1904, and he left Germany when the Nazis came to power. During World War II, he got typecast playing Nazis, but he didn't mind because he saw it as a way to get back at the Nazis. Um, that seems to be a common theme with German actors in mm -hmm. Hollywood. Uh, Koslik played Joseph Goebbels five times in Damn. different movies. Uh, and we saw him as Ragib in The Mummy's Curse. Mm -hmm. In the 1950s and 60s, he acted primarily on television. And for 30 years, uh, until 1958, he was in a relationship with fellow German emigrant actor Hans Heinrich von Twardowski, who played Alan in Cabinet of Dr. Caligari. Oh, shit. Yeah. I always knew Alan was gay. Yes, I think we mentioned it in the episode. <laughs> In the heroic romantic lead uh, role in the film is 33-year-old actor Robert Lowry, uh, who came from Kansas City originally and was mostly someone who was, you know, basically like this, like the square-jawed heroic lead in, like, action movies, basically. Uh, westerns. <laughs> action movies? Well, like, westerns and crime films and, okay. and things. Action movies, I guess, don't really exist in the 40s, but, like... Or at least in the way that we know action today, movies yeah. as. But, like, in... Adventure, I guess, would be, Adventure like the, movies, yeah. Yeah, the contemporary term. We last saw him as the romantic lead in The Mummy's Ghost. The Mummy's Ghost was the one where the university chick becomes Princess Sinanka, yeah. and he's the boyfriend. So a lot of universal veterans mm -hmm. involved in this. Yes. Today, Robert Lowry's greatest claim to fame is that he was the second actor to play Batman in the 1949 Batman and Robin serial. Okay. That's, that's quite the claim to fame. Yeah. That's the, of the two Batman serials, which neither of which are very good, the second one is worse. Uh, which is quite a thing, given that the first one is racist. Yes. The female lead is portrayed by actress Virginia Gray. She was born in California in 1917 and had been acting since she was 10, but her career never really took off. She got steady work through her whole career, but she never became, like, a, a name. Star. Yeah. Throughout the 1940s, however, she dated Clark Gable, um, following the death of his wife, Carol Lombard, and then was heartbroken when Gable married Lady Sylvia Ashby in 1949. Virginia Gray never married, and in 1958, she returned to the Church of Latter-day Saints, which she had left to become an actress. She passed away in 2004. Whoa, that's actually pretty recent. Yeah. Well, 15 years, but, you know, made it to the 2000s. Yeah. Um, somewhat ironic, given that Robert Lowry is in this movie, the film also features future Alfred, Alan Napier, mm. who we've seen before in Cat People, The Uninvited, and Isle of the Dead. Virginia Christie, who played the Princess Sinanka in The Mummy's Curse, and then would, in the 60s and 70s, become the face of Folger's Coffee, uh, also appears in this movie, uh, as the Lady of the Streets. Oh, boy. <laughs> All right, the Green Office just didn't care about this movie? Apparently not. So, House of Horrors was released on March 29th, 1946, but Rondo Hatton would not live to see it, having passed away on February 2nd after a series of heart attacks. The second Creeper picture, The Brute Man, would be released later in the year, but the third film in the series was never produced. Okay. Will we be watching the second movie? Yes. Is it horror? Yeah. Okay, cool. You can find House of Horrors on DVD from TCM Home Video, either on its own or as part of the Universal Cult Horror Collection. Yeah, I would characterize this as a cult movie. Not so much in the same way that, like, Rocky Horror Picture Show or Cats will be. Okay. But, uh, yeah, unknown, maybe okay, good movie. Well, I know that, like, Rondo Hatton became something of, like, a cult figure just because of, like, how distinctive his appearance is and mm -hmm. the fact that, like, his movies ended up being, you know, the kind of movies that were shown on, like, late-night schlock theater shows on TV in, like, the 50s and 60s. Yeah. So that sort of gained him some notoriety. And I am excited to see him in a starring role here. Mm -hmm. Cool. Well, um, folks, if you want to watch along... 
Uh, Ben's given you tips on where you can watch it. In the meantime, you're going to hear a brief musical interlude, and when we come back, we will discuss House of Horrors from 1946, directed by Gene Yarbrough. See you on the other side, everybody. everyone to Scream Scene. We just finished watching House of Horrors from 1946, directed by Gene Yarbrough. Sarah, what did you think of this? It was interesting. Um, I am disappointed in some aspects, pleasantly surprised about others. Yeah. What did you think? It was better than I expected, but Mm -hmm. not as good as it could have been. Yeah. Yeah. Um, how about you tell us what it's about, and we can dive in. Sure. So, the film begins with a sculptor named Marcel Delange, who lives in New York, and he is a sculptor of modern art, basically. Um, he sculpts figures, like human figures, but it's, you know, um, all, like, very abstracted. Um, but you can still tell that his models are naked women. Uh, Like, he does, like, nude women is what he does. But they're all, like, very, you know, mid-century modern art. And apparently this means that he's penniless. Like, nobody wants his stuff. He's very, like, upset about this. Uh, He's very poor. He's basically starving. But he's got a sale tonight. Somebody's going to come buy his work. And this rich guy shows up to buy this piece. But he's brought a art critic along with him, F. Holmes Harmon who is played by Alan Napier, Mm -hmm. and he's brought this critic around with him basically to tell him whether to buy the thing or not. Yeah. So they look at Marcel's sculpture, which is of two women fucking, and I have... Yeah, it's it's two women fucking. There's no way to not see it. I have no idea how any of this got past the Breen office. They just didn't give a fuck. And Harmon says, this is trite. Don't buy it. It's worthless. Like, in the studio with Marcel in the room. And Marcel's like, how dare you insult me in my own, like, studio? Get out of here. And chases yeah, them out like, with a knife. at least, like, wait until you leave the room. Yes, exactly. Like, Marcel chases these guys out of her, his studio with a knife. And it's so funny because Alan Napier just, like, pulls the other guy behind him so that he can get out first. Marcel's very despondent, and he decides he's going to throw himself into the river and drown himself. But he discovers uh, a man in the river, and he pulls him up out of the river. And this man is the Creeper, played by Rondo Hatton. The movie seems to be taking place in continuity with Pearl of Death, in that, like, everyone knows this is the Creeper. He's, like, a pre-established criminal. Everyone thought he was dead. Uh, His modus operandi of murder is the same, where he breaks people's backs. So the fact that, like, Marcel finds him, like, in the river in New York and, like, pulls him out, but, like, Sherlock Holmes movies are set in, like... London. Yeah. Makes me wonder, like, did Rondo... Like, did the creeper, like... swim across the pond? Right. Like, did his body just, like, (laughs) surf across the Atlantic? He's not Frankenstein's creature universal. You can't just hand wave away a semblance of indestructibility. Listen, the dark side of the force is a pathway to many abilities, some considered to be unnatural. (laughs) So, um, Marcel gets a good look at the creeper and he's like, holy shit, you would be a dope sculpture and takes him back to his studio and is like, I'm going to, you know, feed you and nurse you back to health. And you're going to be, the um, model for my new sculpture and it'll be my masterpiece and you know all's good and the creeper is pretty like grateful for being taken care of in this way but he's the creeper and creeper got a creep so like one night you know he spots like a woman walking around outside and just goes and murders her and that part of the movie I really liked actually because like I don't know if we've ever really, like, I I guess, like, it's just serial killers have been so rare in horror movies up to this point that, like, 
you know, the idea of like, yeah, he's just a serial killer. Like he just kills women. That's what he does. You know, he's a Jack the Ripper type of character. And so there isn't like any motive to this. It's just something he needs to do. The next day, the murder's in the newspaper and Marcel's reading it and he's like, man, I, you know, what would cause a man to snap a woman's spine like that? And the creeper just very casually at the table says, she screamed. Yeah, it's great. And like, I don't think Marcel has realized who the creeper is up to now. And the movie does something really interesting after this scene where Marcel never really says to Rondo Hatton, like, hey, you're the creeper, aren't you? Or There's no never a moment where it's like, oh, he's the creeper. But clearly he figures it out and he just kind of like basically starts to go like, oh, man, there's this art critic. And if he just wasn't around to criticize me like, oh, I'd be able to sell my art and we'd have money and we'd be able to eat nice things. And, oh, if only just he wasn't around somehow. Gosh, I just, but, you know, that's never going to happen because he's over there at his office at this precise address at this time of day. And, you know, he's totally safe there. (laughs) If only somebody would do something. (laughs) And so then the creeper's like, all right, and goes and um, murders Harmon in his office. Now, Harmon has a fellow art critic that he works with, Joan Medford. She's played by Virginia Gray. And she had come up to see Harmon and talk with him about, like, their jobs, basically. And the big difference between them is Joan is, like, a tough-talking dame, and Harmon is, like, a snooty asshole. And Joan is in love with Stephen Morrow, who is a pinup artist who does, like, covers for magazines and stuff. Harmon had written this scathing review of Morrow that was basically like, yeah, he draws, like, unrealistic women. They all have, like, vapid expressions. It's not real art. It's just commercial trash. And she's, like, coming at him like, that's totally unfair. And, like, you know, you should be more objective in your reviews and, uh, you know, this kind of thing. And you should tell the truth and say that he's a successful commercial artist. And it's like... Harmon's trying to say, like, right, but that's not what criticism is. That's not what... Anyways, the screenwriter of this movie has a real big problem with critics, and it's really obvious he's taking it out on the characters in this movie by turning, like, all the critics into, like, evil straw men who, like, only criticize artists because they get off on being assholes. So Joan is like, well, you know, you should be easier on Steve... And then she leaves, and Harmon goes back to writing his review where he's like, just now someone tried to tell me that Steve Morrow was a successful commercial artist, but I'm telling you, he's a piece of shit. <laughs> and it's sort of at that point that the creeper comes in and murders him. So the next day when the police arrive, Detective Larry Brooks... Who is the best voice. Yes. Um, he finds the unfinished review, and like they have no leads as to who killed this guy. So he's like, well... He was writing a bad review of this artist. So my working theory is this artist killed him. He's just following up a lead. So he goes to Morrow's studio. And yeah, Morrow's just like this guy. He's Robert Lowry, uh, who paints pinups yeah. for, like, magazine covers. And he's also an asshole um, because this movie has, like, the 1940s screenplay problem where it's trying really hard to make all of the characters, like, really quippy and hard-boiled, but it just comes off as they're all assholes, either because the actors don't have enough charisma to pull it off, or the writing just doesn't understand what makes characters like that work. Yeah. Um, They wanted a His Girl Friday feel, but what they got was bringing up Baby. mm. So, the thing about Steve Morrow is he's, like, all-American, like virile man. He's our hero, in fact. But, like, Detective Brooks isn't really off-base in suspecting him because he's like, ah, you know, uh, like, I didn't kill Harmon, but, like... Sure, I'm glad he's dead, though. I'm sure glad he's dead. Yeah, exactly. And Joan, who's his girlfriend, like, she d- doesn't give a shit that Harmon's dead. She's like, a huzzah to murder. Like, no one in this movie has any kind of human emotions. Steve doesn't like that Joan has a job even though I'm sure that's how they probably met and wants her to stop being an art critic because he doesn't, he finds the idea of her going and talking to other people without him to be like unbearable. Uh, And she's like, well, 
That's fuck my you. job. Yeah, and if you want a girl who's just going to stay at home all day and wait for you, go out and find one. Now, Marcel's working on his, uh, you know, new masterpiece. At one point, Joan stops by the studio to try and figure out, like, hey, what's Marcel up to these days? Because she needs a story. But he wants to keep it all, like, secret until the um, unveiling of this sculpture. Meanwhile, Detective Brooks has kind of hit a wall in terms of his investigation because Morrow has an alibi for the night that Harmon was killed. But that alibi is backed up by a bunch of other artists who probably also hated Harmon. So Brooks suspects that, like, maybe it's still Morrow. So he goes to another art critic, Hal Ormiston, and is like, hey, I want you to write a real shitty review of Morrow on purpose to, like, draw him out if he's the murderer. And the way that Ormiston does this is by comparing Morrow to Marcel, by basically being like, you know, Morrow's vapid, all-too-perfect women pinup art is just as meaningless and without significance as the insane sculptures of, like, that total piece of shit, Marcel Delange. <laughs> and, like, obviously in better language than this. Uh, it's pretty close. And, like... This is something that keeps coming up in the movie, is people look at Marcel's, like, completely normal for the time period modern art sculptures, and going like, only a madman with murder in his heart and insanity in his veins could have possibly sculpted these. And it's like, okay. And then meanwhile, like, Steve is a totally normal dude because he draws pinup art. What's kind of weird is that they both still have sexualized women as their subject matter, though. Yeah. Um... After writing this piece, which, that comparison makes no sense, but okay. Yeah, don't compare, like, painting or illustration to sculpture. Yeah, I mean, it's like reading a movie review that would be like saying, you know, oh, the Michael Bay Transformers movies are so devoid of meaning that they're the same thing as reading Twilight novels. And it's like, no. Anyways. So, the unintended side effect of this is that Marcel sees this and gets pissed off. And is like, ah, another critic who stands in my way. If only there just were no more critics. And the creeper's like, hmm, hmm, where does this critic live? And Marcel's like, oh, this exact address. And the creeper's like, hmm, hmm, yes, okay. <laughs> Here's the thing about Steve, though. Is even though he's not the murderer, he still falls exactly into this trap. Because he goes to Ormiston's apartment to, like, yell at him about this review. And this is presented as, like, a totally reasonable thing for an artist to do when confronted with a bad review. Which is really weird to me. Yeah. Like, all the artists in this movie present it as though critics are just there to be mean to artists for no reason. And it's, like, totally unreasonable. And artists should, like, fight back or whatever, and and beat up critics because they're evil. This is like Gamergate in 1946. <laughs> yeah, so, like, Morrow goes over there, and he's like, you know, fuck you for writing this piece, and Ormiston's like, hi, yeah, we're in, like, my house, and, like, uh, you can't just barge into my house and tell me how to do my job, and, like, maybe you shouldn't be such a big baby, and if you don't leave right now, I'm phoning the police. And Morrow goes to strangle Ormiston to death because of that. And then that's when the police all pop out of their hiding spots because this was a sting operation. Surprise! And <laughs> Happy birthday! <laughs> and, it, and Brooks is like, well, you're the murderer. And Steve's like, no, no, I'm not. It's like, motherfucker, you were just about to murder him for the crime of phoning the police on you because you were trespassing in his property. Like... But, you know, Moro's the hero, and this incident is never brought up ever again. It was a totally reasonable thing to do. Critics should die. Now, Ormiston is very shaken up about all this, and he's like, Hey, everybody, um, you know, while you're arresting Moro there, I'm just going to go get us all something to drink. And being that it's the 1940s, everyone was like, Yeah, absolutely. I'm working, <laughs> but alcohol sounds great. And even Steve's like, Yeah, I could use one too, thanks. Yeah. <laughs> so Ormiston goes into the next room. And I guess there's, like, two ways into this apartment, because the creeper comes in through the kitchen door and murders the hell out of Ormiston, and they hear, like, a glass break, and they all go into the kitchen, and it's like, well, I guess Steve's not the murderer. Meanwhile, um, Joan, who's still, like, desperate for that Sunday feature story, 
decides she's going to steal the sketch that Marcel works off of when he does his um, sculpture of the creeper. And so she steals it to write a story about it. Remember earlier when I said all the characters in this movie are unlikable assholes? Like, also her, too. Because, like, this is not how being an art critic works. Like, Yeah, it's not even how being a journalist works. No, you can't just go and steal shit for the sake of a story. Like, yeah, that's maybe something that you would see, like, Lois Lane do, but usually it would be in service of, like, oh, I'm proving that Lex Luthor is building a nuclear bomb in Metropolis, not, oh, I have a deadline and nothing to write about, so I stole this thing from this guy without permission. So... (laughs) Earlier, I did get permission to steal this thing from this guy. (laughs) So she goes to, like, run the sketch and write a column about it. And she has a uh, date with Steve later, but she's going to be late for that because of this, like, last-minute column that she's writing. Then once she's got the sketch back from, like, the art department at the newspaper, um, she's like, okay, I have to go back to Marcel's and drop this off again in such a way that he'll never notice it was gone. Now, of course, Marcel immediately noticed that it was gone uh, because it's the sketch that he uses to work off of for his current project. Like, yeah. So while Joan is off at the newspaper writing up her column, Marcel's like, man, if that Joan chick, if she figures out that you're the creeper from from that sketch, like, we're all fucked. Gosh, if only someone would put a stop to her. Uh, And so the creeper goes to murder Joan. I don't remember how the creeper figures that she's at Steve's studio, but that's where the creeper goes. She's not there. Steve isn't there either because he's left to go meet Joan at the office to wait for her to be done the column uh, so they can go on their date. Joan isn't at the office, though, because she's gone to Marcel's studio to drop off the sketch. So when the creeper gets to Steve's studio... The only person who's there is Steve's model for his pinup art, who's there waiting for Detective Brooks to show up because she's got a date with him, and that's where they're meeting because the two of them met because Brooks is always questioning Morrow about are you a murderer or not. And the creeper shows up and is like, well, here's a girl at the place I was told a girl to kill would be, and kills her. So Detective Brooks shows up at the studio, finds his dead date, and is like, Well, maybe it was Steve after all. And Steve is waiting around for Joan at the office. Like, where is she? Meanwhile, Joan is at Marcel's studio, and Marcel's like, Oh, hey, Joan, didn't expect you to still be alive. Come on in. And Joan's like, Yeah, sorry, I stole your thing. Uh, my, my bad. I just needed it for, to write a story. Like, it'll be free publicity for you. Like, it'll be good for you. Don't worry about it. And he shows her his completed sculpture of Rondo Hatton's head. And she's like, wow, yeah, this is, sure is something, Marcel. Mm Mm-hmm. And, uh, Marcel's like, well, but you know, I can't let you leave until the model gets back. You'll, you'll want to talk to him. And, uh, because it'll be quite a news story that the creeper was my model. And Joan's like, oh, you know, no, I didn't know it was the creeper. Like, nobody has to know that. Like, you didn't know when you fished him up out of the river. Like, it's not a big deal. Now, the creeper has gotten back to Marcel's studio and is, like, hiding behind some scaffolding, listening into this conversation. And basically, Joan talks Marcel into, like, doing the villain thing and explaining his whole deal and his whole plan and, like, all of these people who he's gotten the creeper to kill. And he's like, and now, Joan, like, I couldn't possibly let you live because you know my my secret. And Joan's like, oh, no, no, like, don't worry about it, man, because, like, if they figure out it's the creeper, you can always just say you had no idea it was him, and then he'll go to jail and you'll be famous because you'll have a sculpture of the creeper. And Marcel's like, yeah, dope. Actually, that makes a ton of sense. I'll totally sell the creeper up the river. And then the creeper comes out from behind his hiding place and is like, you what? And kills Marcel, smashes the sculpture. He's going to kill Joan, but then Steve shows up and Detective Brooks, who uh, shoots the creeper in the back. Now, apparently, Steve figured out what was going on off-screen because the art department at the newspaper saw the sketch and then, like, looked at their headlines about the creeper doing murders and was like, this is the same dude. Does she know this is the same dude? And the sketch has Marcel's signature on it, so Steve followed it here. 
Apparently, also, Detective Brooks did that exact same thing, and they got here at about the same time. Anyways, with the Creeper being shot and Universal wanting a franchise, Detective Brooks is like, hey, get this guy to a hospital. Meanwhile, Steve and Joan get a taxi out of there, and Joan's like, you know what? Having jobs is for chumps. I'm totally cool with just being your stay-at-home wife. And Steve's like, dope. The end. Yeah. Yeah. The parts that I was disappointed in is the fact that Hatton is supposed to be the star of this movie, but he basically has no real agency. Yeah, I mean, once again, he's killing someone... He's killing for someone else, just like in Pearl of Death. Just like in Jungle Captive, for that matter. Yeah, that's why I I do like when he attacks that very first girl, Mm because that's of his own volition. (laughs) Seems weird to be talking about murder in this sort of way. Right, but this Um, is a horror movie podcast. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, him not being able to act is a problem. Um, Yeah. And it's why, like, honestly, the fact that he just kind of, like, monotone, very matter-of-factly says that he killed that woman because she screamed, like, that works as such a chilling moment, kind of in spite of him not being able to act, like, almost, like, because of it, because he just can, he just says it like it's, like, the most normal thing in the world. Yeah. Marcel was actually pretty good. Yeah, the actor's good. He sells you on Marcel, um, and you believe his sort of narrative arc of going from, like, put-upon artist to homicidal maniac. Like, that's a believable shift in this movie. Yeah. There is something sort of uncomfortable for me about the villain of this movie being this guy who exploits the creeper uh, for the purpose of his art. And then, like, the artist plans to become rich and famous while the creeper gets screwed over. And thinking about that with, like, that's what Universal's doing. Like, Universal is exploiting... Rondo Hatton's appearance to create a movie, but Rondo Hatton just, like, you know, dies in obscurity before these movies ever come out. Like, it was just a little uncomfortable. Yeah, and I I do have to say there were moments that were uncomfortable the way that the critics were depicted and Mm -hmm. the way that people were saying critics should be a certain way. Like, you should tell the objective truth when, like, we are in a, I guess we could say, post-Gamergate world of, like... Um, video game criticism and, like, a lot of discourse around that. It tells you, though, that, like, people have been whiny bitches about this forever, (laughs) right? And, like, the thing is, is it just comes off as, like, it comes off as this screenwriter being such a baby. And, like, I, I can expect that, given that the writers for this movie are people who wrote stuff like The Devil Bat and The Mummy's Curse, they probably have had bad reviews in their time, right? And the fact that this movie pits commercial pinup art versus modern art sculpture and posits modern art sculpture as being evil and insane and commercial pinup art as being like good and wholesome and all American and correct and right. Um, to me kind of speaks to that feeling of like, there's nothing wrong with writing B movies basically. And you know, I don't have to go off and be a big artistic experimental, whatever. Like it's very, it's very defensive. Right? Yeah. And, yeah, and it's this whole thing about, like, misunderstanding what critics are supposed to be. The job of a critic is not just to, like, tell you what the thing is. Right? Like, the job of a critic is not to tell you, like, oh, yeah, this movie is 129 minutes, and it's in color, and it has sound, and, like, it consists of frames of film going through a projector. And stars these people. Right. The fact that, like, Harmon's criticism of Steve is that he draws, like, mindless pinup art with w- impossibly proportioned women is entirely accurate and is an entirely fair criticism to make. Yeah. Um, Even Harmon's description and critique of Marcel's sculpture of two lesbians having sex yeah. as, like, vapid and trite, it's like, yeah, but... Also, it's kind of neat as a piece of sculpture. Like, I think, like, the depiction of the critics here are, like, like you said in the plot summary, they are definitely straw men. Um, Just, like, very rude and terse. 
just to be rude and terse, like right. not for any like actual motivations to do it. But they use that rudeness as a reason for why these critics should die, rather than like because they are bad critics or something. Right. And the other thing that's strange is that the way that the artists are depicted here, like the way that Steve and Marcel, like there's no difference between Steve and Marcel. Yeah. The difference is that like Steve got stopped before he killed someone. <laughs> like, like, but one of them is supposed to be the hero and one of them is supposed to be the villain. And like, the thing is, is if you wanted one to be the hero and one to be the villain, then like Steve should be a guy who like criticism just like rolls off his back. Right? Where it's like, yeah, he said some stuff about my art, but you know what? Like, my art's in magazines, I get a regular paycheck, I'm not starving out there like those guys doing surrealism who can't get anyone to buy their shit. Like, I know what I do, I like what I do. Like, that should have been Steve, so then that would contrast with Marcel being like, how dare they say that I'm bad at things? But the fact that Steve's reaction to critics is also like, someone should hang all of them and brr like, implies that that's an okay response for an artist to have yeah, to criticism. Yeah. That, like, the idea of, like, if a critic gives you a bad review, you have every right to go to his house and beat him near to death in it, like, is fucking weird. Yeah, absolutely. Um, Especially if you think about the Hollywood movie machine at this time period yeah. where, like, multiple people's jobs were just to critique movies. Right. And, like, yeah, this idea that, like, they're just doing it to be mean. Yeah. Right? And it's like, no, like, we're all making a living off of things. And, uh, like, sometimes <laughs> shit is bad. Like, yeah. you know, I much... This, this movie's written in such a way that feels so defensive to me, and I honestly, it makes me prefer like the William Bodines of the world who like know what they're doing where mm-hmm. it's like, yeah, I'm making schlock. Like nobody cares. It's fine. There's also something weird going on here that like is happening on multiple levels of this movie where like Marcel, the bad guy who makes art that only an insane person could make is the one who wants to do a sculpture of Rondo Hatton. Mm-hmm. Ergo, the only person who could possibly think Rondo Hatton's face is worthy of art is, like, an insane madman, right? Whereas our hero does art of, like, gorgeous blondes, and that's correct and right and moral. Where And, like, the very premise, honestly, of Rondo Hatton in all of these movies is he's bad because he looks ugly, basically. Um, And, you know, it was funny because during the scene where he's stalking his first victim, right? And he stalks her into an alley and kills her. One of the things I thought about was, like, the way that guys like your Ted Bundys and so on were able to get close enough to people to murder them is that they look normal, right? And they had a charm. Right, but, you know, and people always say, like, oh, you know, he seemed like such a nice guy or whatever, right? If you were late at night and you're walking home and you turn around and Rondo Hatton's following you you're going to fucking, like, scream and book it. Like, you can't sneak up on someone when you're Rondo Hatton, right? I mean, to be fair, he's called the creeper because we see him creeping into, like, where the murders are going to happen. He's, sure. He's silent like a cat. Right. Um, but, yeah, there's just something very, like, weird and problematic about the creeper and the way that the movie basically, like, equates ugliness with evil in a way that feels weird for Universal, which was often a studio that made you feel sympathetic for the monsters. And, like, even here, like, we get the traditional, like, monster turns against... Like, if this was a mad scientist movie, right? Monster against creator. Right, right, right. In a way, it still is monster against creator. Right. And yet, like, you know, because Rondo Hatton's the one who's doing the murders, like, the creeper's the one who's killing people, he's the one who has to get shot. Yeah. Like, it's just... it's, It's... it's a little bit, the messaging in this movie is a little muddied. Yeah, I do like that the creeper doesn't immediately go to kill Marcel. He goes to destroy the sculpture, and Marcel tries to stop him, and that's when he kills Marcel. Yes. You know, thinking about Yarbrough and the fact that he made Devil Bat, uh, which is just, like, hilariously fun. Um, I think he's leveled up his filmmaking craft here. 
Yes, I would agree, but the film is still not directed well enough to work in my mind. Like, yeah. directing and editing are a big problem here. Like, they have the shadows, you know? And yeah, they have really good atmospherics. Yeah, but when there's the final climactic scene where the creeper's threatening Joan, like, he's on one side of a scaffold and she's on the other, and they're both just kind of, like, standing there like, oh. Uh, uh, like who's gonna move who's gonna move and it's like that for like five minutes and the editing doesn't really help make it feel suspenseful or she tries to escape the studio at one point and the door is locked but it's locked from the inside and the movie just has her like jiggling the handle over and over again and it goes on just a little too long yeah like it goes on long enough that instead of it making look like joan is panicking and is like oh shit i can't get through this way and runs back, it makes it look like Joan's too stupid to unlock a door that's locked from her side. Yeah. What what the movie lacks is tension and suspense. Um, so you never, like, you know, have the hairs raised on the back of your neck because it's all just kind of too languid. Um, and I think that more focused direction and maybe, like, a rewrite to make the characters likable probably yeah. would have helped this movie a lot. Yeah, like, the banter that everyone has, what is neat is this has the the B-movie problem of, you know, we gotta fill some time, and it right. manages to fill time by using banter and, like, having some neat quips from, like, random characters and mm-hmm. stuff, and, and it works. It doesn't feel like, you know, you can tell that we have to watch the clock. And some of the lines are pretty good, but everyone really does come off as an asshole. Like, at the very least, our main characters. Like, what's weird is that, like, the detective who thinks that Steve is the murderer, like, so his character is supposed to be, like, you know, in Maltese Falcon, there's, like, the detective who's trying to put Humphrey Bogart in jail, and you're supposed, like, you're not supposed to like the cop, but, like, honestly, the cop was the most likable character. Because he was just trying to do his job, you know? He has this great line of, um, when he's talking to Steve, do you know New York? Yeah, I grew up here. Good, then you know where the city limits are. Don't leave, in case I need to talk to you again. Right. Like, that That was fun. I, I enjoyed that. I think it's a big demonstration of how much you need charisma to yeah. pull off those lines. Yeah. Because you kind of have to say those hard-boiled lines with a bit of, you know a bit of a, a glimmer in your eye, a bit of, you know, tongue in your cheek. You need to be Cary Grant. Right, because if you, you know, say stuff like that, just like dead serious, you just come off like a jerk. And that's what Robert Lowry comes off as here. Yeah. And the thing is, is that Joan comes off the same way, and they have this back and forth banter where they're just being assholes to each other. Like, he's like, well, I think women shouldn't work. And she's like, well, I think you should drown in a river. And he's like, well, I think you should get run over by a car. And I'm sitting there going, and I think we're supposed to be laughing at this? Like, like they're just jerks to each other all the time. And it's not funny or fun. So this is a tangent. Mm. But... Um, so Ben and I are nerds, and before we watch a movie, um, earlier in the day, we might watch a cartoon short that would have been released by that same studio. So this was Universal, so earlier in the day we watched a couple Woody the Woodpecker cartoons. Mm -hmm. We, we talk a lot about Woody the Woodpecker and how it's trying to rip off the Looney Tunes goofy, um, like wacky... Uh, attack the bad guy kind of thing of bugs going against Elmer Fudd, but Woody is always an asshole about it because it's not justified to be mean to Wally Walrus. Yeah. And seeing Woody Woodpecker, seeing this banter, was it just like in vogue to be an asshole in the 40s? I don't think so. Because... You, we have these other examples where it works. Yeah. Right? Because there's Bugs Bunny. Because there's Humphrey Bogart. Like, it's what it is, and it's something that you see going on still to this day, is people looking at something that's successful and copying it without really understanding why it worked in the first place. Yeah. Right? Copying the the shape of a thing without copying, like, what's inside it. 
So, like, in the case of Woody Woodpecker, it's missing the fact that, yeah, Bugs is a jerk to Elmer Fudd, but he's always justified because Elmer Fudd's trying to kill him. Yeah. Um, or, you know, Humphrey Bogart is a jerk to these other people in these movies, but it's justified because Humphrey Bogart is, like, down on his luck, and these guys are trying to screw him over and stuff, right? Like, Steve Morrow isn't put upon enough to mm-hmm. for us to cheer at him being an asshole, right? Like, there's no... Uh, victory in him pulling one over on the cops or whatever, right? No one's an underdog enough for us to be, like, rooting for them to be this... You know, it's punching up versus punching down, right? Like, if you have people... You know, like, Joan is this fucking glamorous woman in these, like, amazing outfits and, you know, perfect hair and is clearly, like, very wealthy, you know, despite being an art critic. And, (laughs) like... And so her being kind of, like, belittling to people just makes her seem like a bitch because, like, you know, it's bullying, right? But it's looking at a thing that's been successful elsewhere and copying it without really understanding why it worked, right? And you see that all the time today still in movies when something's successful. You know, it's like Guardians of the Galaxy comes out, everyone loves it, so let's recut Suicide Squad to have a bunch of 70s rock music in it without understanding that, like, the 70s rock music was, like, informed by the story in Guardians of the Galaxy. Yeah. Yeah, just the, like, facsimile of what actually works. Mm -hmm. So I think, um, to kind of wrap up our discussion, I think we should turn to the Wheel of Morality. (laughs) Wheel of Morality, turn, turn, turn. Tell us the lesson that we should learn. So one, Uh criticism should be objective, according to this movie. Right. And two is don't be an independent lady or you'll die. I would also offer three commercial art is morally superior to um, like experimental art. Yeah. Thanks, movie. Thanks, House of Horrors. Why is it called House of Horrors? Because there's no houses. uh, Studio is a house. No, it's not. House is horrors. It's not. It's in New York. It is very not a house. A brownstone can be a house. And it and it it and it doesn't ha- house horrors. It hor- houses horror. Like it, it's <laughs> it's a bad title, Sarah. Like House of Horrors is for one thing the most generic ass fucking title you could give Absolutely. a horror movie. But also then it should be the title of like some an anthology movie or a, something, or like an old dark house movie where like the family's a family of serial killers. Like House of Horrors is a more accurate title for the Texas Chainsaw Massacre than it is for this movie. You know, this movie should have been called like Eye of the Beholder or something. <laughs> okay, so for ranking Ben, where were you looking? Well, I'll tell you. Um, I don't really have a story about how I ended up with this range, but um, my Floor is number 97, uh, which is The Invisible Ray. Okay. I think this is better than that. And my ceiling is number 82, Supernatural. Supernatural has, like, more interesting ideas than this movie. Um, Right below Supernatural is The Vampire Bat, which also has more interesting ideas than this movie, but whose, like, execution is flawed. And then... Down at the bottom of my range, um, you have, like, The Unknown, which this movie weirdly reminds me of, but, like, is a very different kind of movie and is hard to compare this to. Um, But then below that is Invisible Ray, which is just a bizarre movie that is hard to, like, understand what the premise is supposed to be. Uh, Whereas, like, this, I get what the deal is. It's dumb, but I get it. Sure. Um, So my range is right overlapping yours. Um, My floor was the devil bat because, like I kind of said earlier, I think your bro has definitely leveled up his filmmaking craft. Yeah. Even if it's not perfected, but it, it it's still like a step above. Um, I mean, it's now six years later, so you hope to have improved six years later. For sure, especially if you're making five Abbott and Costello movies a year. Yeah. So that's my floor. And then working my way up, I just felt like I couldn't go higher than The Mummy at 81. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, because, like, above that is The Devil Doll, which required a level of craft making that Yarbrough wouldn't be able to do. And The Mummy, especially with its opening sequence, um, gives you the chills 
has it has something to say mm-hmm. at least at the very least with how Karloff is playing uh Imhotep mm-hmm. um slash Ardith Bay. So yeah, that that was my range, which basically overlaps with yours. Yeah, so I, I agree that this is probably better than the devil bat. It's tough because in the middle of this range things get like a little mushy. Yeah. Um is this better than man made monster? Is this better than before I hang? Or is it just that I've seen it more recently than those movies? Sure. I guess for me, I think Man-Made Monster is a good thing to compare it to. Mm. Um, not for any, like, thematic reasons, but the Man-Made Monster was almost like a trial run of the Wolfman, both in the sense of Lon Chaney Jr. being our main creature type of thing, um, and him being sympathetic. Right. Universal wasn't really sure it seemed to me, how to make a sympathetic monster that wasn't Frankenstein's creature. And so they were trying something new, trying to, like, create almost a new icon Mm -hmm. for horror. Similar, they're trying to do that here, or at the very least make a new franchise, if not an icon. And I think Universal choosing to have Rondo Hatton be, like, second fiddle Mm -hmm. to Marcel Mm -hmm. means that... House of Horrors should go below Man-Made Monster. Because at the very least with Man-Made Monster, Lon Chaney Jr. was able to stand on his own two feet, was able to be the star, um, and like have the icon you're going for be the star of the thing you're trying to do, versus House of Horrors where, you know, without that throwaway line of, like, get this man to a hospital, there's nothing that's, like, making this not a one-off movie. Well... I think you're right, and I think, you know, the other thing to think about here, too, is, like, this movie, I think, gets taken down by being trapped in a formula that it doesn't need to be trapped in. Yeah. So, you know, because we already identified that this is actually the same thing as, like, a mad scientist monster movie, where the monster turns against the mad scientist at the end. It's just, it isn't that movie. Yeah, which it's a is different why, kind of creator. Right, but, like... It's not that, so it shouldn't have that formula applied to it, but it does because, oh, that formula is what a horror movie is, and we don't know how to make a horror movie out of that formula. Like, Even if you think about the devil bat, where Bela Lugosi is sending his devil bat out to kill people, <laughs> it's the same thing here. Well, yeah, and like, so there's always like your master villain, and then they're like brutish henchmen, henchmen and what they you know, figured out long ago with the Frankenstein movies was like, well, you make the brutish henchman sympathetic and then he can be turned against the villain at the end, right? And they've been doing variations on that for years. Man-Made Monster does that. Um, where, like, Lionel Atwell, I think, is the scientist in that one. Probably. Um, I don't remember. And the thing is, is it doesn't work here because the Creeper isn't sympathetic. The Creeper is a psychopath who kills women because he needs to, and, like, has no, you know, part of it's an effect of Rondo Hatton having a very dry delivery because he can't act. But the impression you get is he has no, like, conscience or morals or anything in there, right? Yeah. So he's not a sympathetic character. And it's almost as if Universal is afraid to grapple with the idea of what does a horror movie look like if we center on the monster and they are not sympathetic and they are just horrible and this like relentless killing machine. Right. Because that's, yeah, that's going to be the, that's the slasher genre. And that's like 40 years from now. Yeah. And like, we've seen proto slashers. Mm -hmm. We've seen them from universal Mm -hmm. too, but it's interesting to see them grappling with it because it's clear that we are not ready for a slasher yet. Uh, We as in like the contemporary culture, of this movie, um, or at least the people making the movie. Yeah, like, it's hard to, for them, they don't have an answer to the question of, like, what does that movie look like? So they're just slotting him into, you know, like, like this script could have been a pre-existing script that they just slotted the Creeper character into, Yeah. right? Okay. So let's go below Mad Made Monster, um, but um, what's below Mad Made Monster right now is Spanish Dracula. Yeah, so similar to the idea of, like, they're kind of just copying, they're just making a facsimile. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, I think an argument could be made for 
House of Horrors going above or below that, but I think because Spanish Dracula is still very based in the proscenium type of filming, mm. that House of Horrors can go above it. What do you think? Well, it's tough, because I know a lot of people like Spanish Dracula, and they like it for like the performances. My feeling on the performances in that movie is they're way too over the top, and I prefer the more subtle performances in the Lugosi film. However, comparing that to like the acting here, where Martin Kozlek, who plays Marcel, is very effective, and then like Rondo Hatton just has to be himself, and then it like you know the guy who plays the detective is okay, and then it starts to fall apart because we have these actors who can't pull off playing these hard-boiled characters. So I'm I'm really not sure which, you know, is better in terms of those acting performances. I I'm I'm fairly confident that like I'm comfortable with saying this is better than the sealed room. Yeah. Um just cuz the sealed room isn't much of anything. Yeah, it's like less than 10 minutes long if yeah. that. Um but I'm not sure about Spanish Dracula. It's been a really long time. Yeah, that's episode 25. Yeah. Um so if you want to consider based on the performances. So we've mentioned how both casts are trying to emulate something without fully understanding why it is the way it is. Mm-hmm. I think Spanish Dracula probably had a better handle on why it is the way it is because they're making it so different from yeah. English Dracula. Spanish Dracula was looking at what English Dracula was doing and saying, oh, we can improve on this. And whether you think they did or not comes down to what your tastes are. Yeah. And our taste was that they did not improve. But this movie is trying to emulate and isn't getting it. So I think I think let's put this below Spanish Dracula. Cool. I'm good with that. All right. So entering the list at the new number 92 is House of Horrors from 1946, directed by Gene Yarbrough. Yo, bro. If you would like to see this list, you can go to our website, screamscenepodcast.tumblr.com. There you can find links to the many an episode that we've mentioned today, as well as our appeals box. If you would like to contest this ranking, if you would like to send any kind of questions, suggestions, concerns, similar thoughts, if you want to discuss something with us, we'd love to hear that shit. So you can talk to us through our Ask Box on Tumblr, you can email us directly at screamscenepodcast at gmail.com, or you can reach out over Twitter at underscore screamscene. Screamscene updates every Wednesday on SoundCloud, Apple Podcasts, and Google Play. Christmas be damned. Right, yep, mm hmm. <laughs> that's that's a certainly a, a take. <laughs> Through our RSS feed, you can subscribe to the show through uh, most any podcatcher, and you can help the show out a lot if you listen to us on a service that lets you rate or review the shows uh, by giving us a five-star rating. That helps uh, algorithms promote the show to other people, because we live in a world of no middle sliders, (laughs) and, uh, you know, leaving a review helps us a lot, and we just like to see them. You can also help the show out by just promoting us to your friends uh, yourself through word of mouth. Now, granted, it's the Christmas season. Yeah, so at Christmas dinner, you can bring all of this good 1940s classic Hollywood film trivia to wow your relatives with. Sure, sure. Don't want to talk politics with Uncle Joe? Don't have to. Just bring up the Exciting life and times of Boris Karloff. Right. <laughs> or you can head over to patreon.com slash screamscenepodcast to become a patron of the show and give us some uh, financial support, uh, which is always really appreciated. Um, you can become a supporter for just as little as a dollar a month. And at higher levels of support, like $5 and $10, you get special um, bonus content sent your way. And uh, if we hit our first Patreon goal of $150 a month, we'll start doing bonus episodes once a month on horror-adjacent movies, which means we might talk about The Pearl of Death. Yeah, I would actually be really interested to see it. Mm -hmm. Same with the Spider-Woman. 
also, like, Abbott and Costello meet Frankenstein or Wolfman or whoever they meet, um, those would fall into horror adjacent. Exactly. So, that's patreon.com slash podcast. So what are we watching next week, Ben? Well, Sarah, uh, this week we were watching a movie that you could say was from the makers of The Devil Bat. Next week, we are watching the sequel to The Devil Bat. It's The Devil Bat's Daughter at PRC, <laughs> directed by Frank Vispar. Okay. So, it, The Devil Bat had a daughter? Like Lugosi's character. Yeah, yeah, not the bat itself. Well, like, the Mm -hmm. title is confusing, Mm -hmm. Ben. Yep. Okay. Well, we'll see you next week, Creatures of the Night. We will see you next year, Creatures of the Night. I guess it would be January 1st. Indeed. Bye. Bye. Bye.